Hey, welcome to the Jewish Road Podcast. We are here with a friend Avner Boski, straight out of southern Israel in Beersheba. And Avner, uh, I've led worship and played much of yours and Rachel's music over the years. And uh, you've always been one of those uh, amazing guys in the Messianic movement, a lot of wisdom. We got to meet you uh, way back in the day doing a tour and uh, you met us down in the old city of Beersheba and walked us through. And so we're coming to you again to be able to um, just hear what is happening on the ground and uh, have a conversation. So welcome to the Jewish Road Podcast. It's wonderful to be with you in the middle of the bluegrass of Kentucky. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, you're down in the southern Negev of the desert in Israel there. Um, Actually, this is kind of the northern Negev, but but it's very small. There you go. So if you don't, if you drive quickly and you don't look carefully, you could be just like that on either side. You miss it. Uh, Avner, tell us, uh, what, what did your day look like on October 7th? And uh, just even the distance, how far are you from uh, the events that took place? Sure. Well, we're about 62 seconds by rocket from uh, Gaza, from Hamas. Uh, you know, since uh, <laughs> there was a prime minister named Ariel Sharon who uh, unilaterally decided to whittle the size of Israel down, uh, a little pressure from Condoleezza Rice, who I'm sure received some from the State Department. And uh, he said, I tell you what, uh, if one rocket comes from Gaza against us, we'll go back in. Well, we've had probably 50,000 since then. Mm. And I think maybe the principle is don't always believe what a politician says, regardless of the party. Um, so we've had uh, rocket attacks, and we're used to occasionally getting a rocket siren. So at 6.30 in the morning, which was early, we got a rocket uh, siren. And so we went downstairs. I don't tend to run because uh, Hezbollah would like, you know, Hamas would like me to run. And so I kind of have a discussion with them on the way down. And I went down to our sealed room and uh, we heard an explosion or two. It was Iron Dome knocking the rockets out of the sky. Um, and we figured that was about it. And then about a half an hour later, we started getting um, some cell phone little video clips of uh, white pickup uh, trucks in Sterot which is about 20 minutes away from here, eh, 20 minutes away from here. No, maybe a little more. No, Steroid would be a little more, maybe about 50 minutes away from here. <clears throat> as a missile, as a rocket flies, it's much shorter, but there was a white pickup trucks with uh, people with Hamas bands on their heads, and we said, that's a strange thing. What does that mean? But it took about an hour or two to understand um, that uh, there was something uh, very different going on, which was uh, uh, somewhere around 2,500 and maybe another 500 to 1,000 um, non-associated people, but 2,500 Hamas uh, terrorists who had crossed over the uh, um, kind of, um, what would you call it, a fence. It's a fence, basically. It's not a cement fence. It's a fence. Um and began, they were actually starting to go in and uh, and kill people, massacre, rape, torture, and really, really gross things that uh, most Nazis didn't do and even ISIS didn't quite do. Uh, we have some friends who are uh, believers on a, one of the kibbutzim, Nachalos, and um, I texted them. I used to be their pastor when we were in uh, St. Petersburg in Russia. I texted them and asked them, how are they doing? And... Uh, she couldn't talk, was texting, and she basically said, 
there's terrorists outside. And then the terrorists came into their house and were in their living room for four hours while they were hiding in the, um, uh, what would you call it? Not, it's not a sealed room, but it's kind of a bunker or protected room. Yeah. Yeah. Like a bunker. But the bunker didn't have the uh, ability to be closed uh, from the inside. So his wife thought it was, and his wife thought that if they shot at, if the terrorists shot at them, they'd be fine. But he knew that it, the bunker was for rockets and not for uh, direct bullets. So for four hours, they watched on their cameras in the in the bunker how the terrorists were moving around in their house. They had a 17-year-old son in his bedroom who was aware of what was happening, and he said, uh, uh, if they kill you, I'm going to come out and they'll kill me too because I don't want to live without you. And they said, no, you have to stay. You have to live. For some incredibly strange reason, these terrorists did not, maybe they figured no one else was there. They didn't open up the sealed room. They didn't go into the bedroom. Four hours. And wow. uh, eventually, a special ops came in. Uh, and by that time, those four had left. The two terrorists had left. Uh, but the special ops couldn't stay. They were having to clean out uh, terrorists from the entire kibbutz. And uh, so for another eight hours, they were there alone while terrorists were running around the kibbutz. So it was quite a heavy time. Well, of course, we were praying for them and with them. But uh, that's just one example. Many people, they just discovered the head of a Israeli-German young woman who uh, had been tortured and paraded through the streets of Hamas, her clothes ripped off of her. I'm not, not sure what else happened, but uh, they just finally uh, were able to um, identify her body, which probably had been burnt apart from all the abuse. She was one of the soldiers on that kibbutz who was guarding the kibbutz. So everybody in Israel knows something about this, somebody who was there, a friend, a soldier. And uh, in this case, we have friends who were uh, one of the two biggest, uh, kibbutzim who got the biggest hit, most, most, most heavily hit. But it was about 22 kibbutzim who were attacked uh, at that time, yeah. So that was my Saturday about uh, three weeks ago. What, what are we not hearing in the headline news that is the, the reality for Israelis today? Well, it's, it's really hard. First of all, the attention span of the average Western uh, television watcher is very limited, and Americans are probably even more limited in that area. I'm not being uh, facetious. It's just the way it is. It's the way commercials work, movies work, and news works. Second of all, news sells blood. Uh, but if it's going against the PC understanding, they don't put it on the news. And so um, Israel had about three or four days of sympathy in the West. And then when we said, okay, this is terrible. We are having Nazis living next to us. Al-Qaeda is our neighbor. ISIS is our neighbor. We can no longer just throw money at them and try to pretend that they're interested in a better life. The Hamas people coming out of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which is the same root spiritually as Al-Qaeda and ISIS, uh, and uh, Morsi, who was president of Egypt at one point, supported, of course, by a previous uh, president uh, that that changed. Um, these people are really, they are kind of like Luther. 
uh, in, uh, in a, well, let me explain what I mean. Luther uh, was seen as a reformer. He said, let's get back to the Bible. These people are seen as heroes of Islam. Let's get back to the Quran. And what's happened is because America has become uh, a kind of a unitarian or a uh, non-religious country where the people say, hey, I don't so much believe the Bible anymore. They just assume the rest of the world is into McDonald's and trance music and jeans and uh, uh, Matthew Perry or whatever it is. It's not true, especially not in the Middle East. And so, uh, you know, one of the names for Osama bin Laden is Al-Assad al-Islam, the Lion of Islam. He's seen as like a Luther restoring the glory of what Islam is. There are people in America who see Islam uh, in a kind of a unitarian way, like an ethical monotheism. But if you believe the Bible, you can't come to that conclusion for a few basic reasons. One, because God's name in the Bible is not Allah. It's yud heh vav Yahweh. And he says, this is my name, period, never to be changed. Second of all, he says, I've chosen the Jewish people and have an everlasting love for them. Third of all, he says, the land of Israel belongs to the Jewish people, and my eyes are always on Jerusalem. Fourth of all, he sends the Messiah, and the Messiah says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he says, again, if you don't accept who Yeshua is, it's not good for you. Islam denies all of those points. Classic Islam. So it is not a monotheistic religion. It is a religion following one of the 360 deities which were worshipped in the Kaaba before Muhammad, whose father was named Abdullah, which means slave or servant of Allah. So Allah was not a revelation, it was a family spirit, and he is not Yahweh. And the teaching of Islam goes against all these points. And so I call it, my own personal understanding is I would say it's not monotheistic religion, it's a monodemonic religion. Because Corinthians says, if you're not following Yeshua and declaring him as Lord, then the God you're following is not God. So I know that's kind of totally politically incorrect, but that's the way it is when you follow the Bible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, that's a short, that's a short answer. Yeah. Uh, I'm, <clears throat> I'm gathering in as you're, as you're talking about this, you know, this is an age old thing that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. You know, when God said to Abraham, I choose you. And as soon as he did that, Satan, the enemy, said, okay, I choose him too. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. What God chose to, lo chose to love, Satan chose to hate. That also applies to us as believers in Yeshua. But it certainly applies to the Jewish people. Has there ever been a group of people, I, I, I've said that there's never been a group that has been so diversely hated. You have the, the Sunnis and the Shia, you have India and Pakistan. There's these age old battles that go back and forth, but has there ever been a group of people so hated by so many different cultures and peoples over the history of, of their existence? Well, you know, um, there's certain political figures in America that seem to be pretty hated, but that's a different issue. Nothing like what the Jewish people have had to deal with. Yeah, yeah it's true. And, uh, <laughs> this reminds me of Tevye's line in Fiddler on the Roof. God, you've chosen us of all nations of the earth. For just for once, why don't you choose somebody else? That's right, yeah. Because with this choosing comes all this attack. And it's a really heavy thing. And it, I think it shows us the reality of, uh, of spiritual warfare. 
So let's get in. Uh, I, I told you earlier that um, I we, we get lots of messages, text messages, stuff through social media, all that fun stuff. But somebody asked, and I, I thought this is a great thing for us to define some of these terms. Um, all of these things that we hear, uh, and, and really what we're hearing a lot of today is the anti-version of them. What does it mean to be anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist, anti-Jewish? But I want to, can we go through um, and and... Let's just go down this list and let's correct and let's get a clear understanding of some of these terms when we say them. So when we say Jew, a Jew, what does that mean? What are we saying when we're, when we're saying, are you Jewish? Who is a Jew? Sure. Well, they say that with two Jewish people, there's three opinions. <laughs> that's right. So that's one thing, of course, but that's partially true and partially a, a joke. Um, again, it all really depends what your source of authority is. So there are th- some people who have who are their own source of authority, or uh, nurse on the bottle of anti-Semitism for def- definitions of what is a Jew. Mm. And I would say I don't do that. I go to what the Scripture says, uh, and then people say, "Well, what does a Jew really mean? The term means this here and that there." But it's not a question of dishonesty. It's a question of you like, uh, is uh, America the whole continent? like North America and South America, or is America a song? Uh, or is America the United States of America? Well, you know, one can play games with words, but basically everyone understands that America, for the most part, means the United States of America. So with Jews, Hebrews, and Israelites, etc., I mean, you have groups that say they're the black Israelites, and you have other groups who say, you know, uh, we are actually... Um, British Israelites were the descendants of the Ten Lost Tribes, which is not a biblical concept at all. It's a medieval concept, and it's not historically based. And I could give a lecture on that, but that's not the time or the place. So, basically, the Bible says God, in Genesis 12, chose a man named Abram, and his descendants through the covenant side, which is Isaac and Jacob, and the twelve tribes or sons of Jacob, those people are called by their father Jacob, who had also the name Israel. So you can call them sons of Jacob, sons of Isaac, sons of Abraham. You can call them Israelites. In those days, there was no state called Israel. Today, there is. So you have the word Israeli today, but you don't have to be Jewish to be Israeli. We have two million Arabs who are citizens of Israel. But in any case, sons of Jacob, sons of Abraham. Now, The difference in the Bible, and very, very clearly said, is it's not enough to be a son of Abraham or a son of Isaac. It has to be through the covenant choosing of God. So a son of Abraham would have been also Ishmael. But Ishmael was not God's choice. It was Isaac who was God's choice. Ishmael came about because Sarah had a better idea, which turned out not to be such a a good idea. God can redeem ideas, and he blessed Ishmael. But it's not the covenant line. So that's the first kind of bump in the road, right? Which is, if you say you're descended from Ishmael like Muhammad, it doesn't mean anything covenantally according to the Bible. Isaac then had two children, Esau and Jacob. One was born a few minutes before the other. Just today, my first daughter, uh, granddaughter was born. So I'm very happy about thinking about kids being born. Mazel Mazel Tov, yeah. (laughs) Amen. And so Isaac had two sons, and again, Uh, Esau and Jacob. Esau had the name Edom. 
He had the name Seir. He had three, two, three, one name and two nicknames. If you're descended from him, however, before the children were born, there was a prophetic word. The prophetic word said the second one who comes out five minutes after the first one, he's going to be the son of covenant. Now, everyone knew that. And so when, uh, when uh, Esau sold his birthright, because he didn't have any interest in it, to Jacob, you had prophetic word and you had transaction that the covenant promise would not go through Esau. So unfortunately, Isaac was doing some what we call foil a shtick in Yiddish. He was trying to do what was fitting in his culture, which was the older one, even five, five minutes older, would get the covenant. But God had other plans, and he used Rebekah, who had faith, and that's found in the book of Hebrews. And so it comes through Isaac, it comes through Jacob, okay, not through Esau. And if you look, interestingly enough, in the prophets, especially Ezekiel, one of the main last day's enemies of Israel is Edom. And it says in Ezekiel 25 that God is going to judge and take his own vengeance on Edom through Israel. Fascinating little passage that most of us don't look at. So anyway, you have Jacob with 12 sons. So the 12 sons of Jacob would be then the sons of Israel. Dina, the daughter of Israel, but she doesn't get any much mention anywhere after that point. So the 12 tribes are then Israel. But you can also call them the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, and the seed of Jacob through covenant. Now what happens then is after uh, David and then Solomon uh, and some of the sins that Solomon didn't deal with, uh, there was a, a judgment spoken over him and uh, that the kingdom would be divided. And so we had a civil war. We had 10 tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. And the two southern tribes took the name Judah, although it was Judah and Simeon, or Shimon, and the ten tribes in the north, uh, there were ten tribes, but they took the name Israel. It's like it wasn't patented. Now, technically, all twelve of them were Israel, but they took the name for the north, ten tribes of Israel. Now, this is interesting, because if you look at Elijah, when he goes on Mount Carmel, and he's going to call fire down, he takes twelve stones for the twelve tribes of Israel. So that's clear that people understood, yes, Israel means all 12, but for right now, because of politics, it just means 10. Now, those people were also, they spoke a language called Ivrit, which in Hebrew is Hebrew. (laughs) And as maybe sources of the word, and people can argue about it, no one knows for sure, but sometimes they were called Ivri. So um, uh, Joseph is called an Ivri in Egypt. But at that time, we don't know much about the use of the term. So you could say a Hebrew, which refers kind of today linguistic language. You could say an Israelite, which means one of the 12 tribes. You could say at a certain little point for two, three hundred years, an Israelite meaning part of the 10 tribes. Or you could say a Jew. Now, the Jew comes from throwing out the D from Judah or Judah. And those are the two tribes in the south. Now, after the Babylonians threw us out of the land, people came back to the area around Jerusalem. And the area of Jerusalem was in the tribal area of Judah, Jerusalem and south. And that's where they settled. So if you lived in that area, you were called someone from Judea, which is, of course, a Greek and then a Roman term. And so the Judeans were where the majority of all 12 tribes lived. So Paul was a Benjaminite, and Anna was from the tribe of uh, 
Asher. And there were all kinds of tribes in the New Testament times. It wasn't just one or two. And Paul says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm praying and evangelizing and doing all these things for the hope of all the 12 tribes of Israel. And James says that too, the 12 tribes of Israel. They're not lost, they're not gone. And so these terms are all synonymous, okay? Jew, Hebrew, Israelite, they're all synonymous. Today, some people try to make cultic followings out of saying, no, Jews are not really Jews, and I'm a Hebrew, and you're not. And, and it's kind of like, who's on first, and what, what do you call it? It's on second with Abbott and Costello. Right. But the Bible is very clear, and uh, that's just a short, fast food answer to your question. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a lot. So considering, you know, this makeup of who we are as Jews, you know, uh, for 4,000 years, we have struggled with, you know, the enemy wanting to destroy and get rid of because they want to get rid of, he wants to get rid of God. But we come that's up right. to today and, you know, I'm astounded at all of a sudden where all of these people came from with all of this hatred that's all over, not just this country, right. but around the world. And not only that, we have to discuss and argue about the names. So it's not only anti-Semitic, it's anti-Semantic. And uh, mm -hmm. we wish it weren't that case, but that's just a small joke. No, that's good. So even, even that word, um, anti-Semitic, um, where does that come from? Well, it's funny. The word anti-Semitic comes from the 1800s in Europe by a man who hated Jews. So it's not actually, uh, you'll find with a lot of people who are scholars, uh, who like to drink coffee and sit in an ivory tower, that they'll say, well, are the Jews a people? Now, again, they're not working from the scriptures. The scriptures say the Jews are a people, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they say, no, nah, maybe they're Khazars, maybe they're people from the middle of Africa, maybe they're this. It's not a race. Why is it not a race? Because people hate races. That's racism. So maybe if we say we're not a race, people won't hate us. It hasn't worked out very well anyway. People hate us regardless. So, yeah, the Bible says Jews are a race uh, and that he has divided mankind into all kinds of groups. And, and in Deuteronomy, uh, uh, I think it's uh, chapter 32, he talks about the fact that when he made the borders of the nations, he set them up based on the number of the sons of Israel. So, yes, there are races, and yes, there's a Jewish race, and yes, God looks at all the other races through the eyes of the Jewish people. So that's a biblical perspective, which the UN certainly <laughs> turns it around backwards, totally backwards, and says it's the nations who have to decide where the Jews live and what the borders of their land are. So Israel was out of the land, technically, um, not ruling in the land, but there's always been a Jewish presence in the land in Eretz Yisrael. Um, but something happened towards the end of the 19th century, and there was the birth of what we would call Zionism. And there was this movement towards the Jewish people wanting to come back into their homeland. Um, now, the, the, the reference that I told you earlier, the friend who said, uh, hey, can you help define some of these things? Um, the, the idea is that Zionism, uh, he said that he heard, uh, Zionism is a political movement that sucks the world dry and consists of both Jews and non-Jews. Unpack <laughs> and dispel that myth. Well, you know what they say, if it walks like a duck and sounds like a duck, it's probably a duck. Uh, 
So when somebody talks about Jews sucking the world dry, I don't duck. I say that's anti-Semitism to begin with. Right. So if we ignore the fact that the guy's an anti-Semite, at least in that comment, we can try to answer his question. Anti-Zionism uh, is a European um, produced philosophy based on the rise of nationalism in Europe. Okay, remember like 500 years ago, you had the Holy Roman Empire, but there was no such thing as Germany. Germany was only created in the 1800s. Um, you had uh, uh, the British Isles, of course, uh, did included Ireland, you know, and today they're wondering about Scotland. But as far as the, uh, uh, the issue of um, uh, nationalism, people said, yeah, the Jews are not a nation. If you go back to Napoleon and his gathering of the great Sanhedrin around 1800, he said, are you a nation or are you a religion? And they didn't know what to answer because Napoleon wasn't interested in a biblical answer, right? Um, and so what he ended up saying is, listen, to the Jews is a religion, full rights in, in France, but to the Jews is a nation, nothing. So what happened is the Europeans said, you know, here are you, these Jews living among us. And we don't really like them so much. And, and if they could go somewhere, that would be great. But if they think that there's going to be a regathering, no, they're a cursed people. Augustine said it, and Origen said it, and Chrysostom said it, all the church fathers. They're never going to be restored. And so that whole debate was happening. And then people uh, like Moshe Hess, pre-communist and uh, 1840s, before Marx a little bit, and people like... Uh, um, uh, Herzl, who was an assimilated uh, Jew from um, Hungary, from uh, the beside the Dohani Synagogue in Budapest, and he uh, basically saw the Dreyfus uh, case where there was huge rioting of anti-Semitism, like just two days ago in Dagestan. The same crazy screaming mm -hmm. killed the Jews, um, and he said, "Europe is not going to be our solution ultimately." So we need to create a kind of a Viennese paradise in the desert sands, maybe in Uganda. Uh, he wasn't so connected to Israel. Uh, but that Zionism as a national liberation movement of the Jewish people uh, is something that came out of Europe and the rise of nationalism. Now, what did it do? <laughs> it's not in a vacuum, as the head of the United Nations said so beautifully just the other day. Uh, in his anti-Semitic declaration. He said that, um, uh, you know, you, 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 where should Jews go? So Orthodox Jews said, what, you're going to take us to Africa? What are you? Are you crazy? Now, actually, uh, Israel is on the west side of the um, continental fault, right, on the, on the platforms, the continental uh, platform. So actually... If you go down west of the Jordan River, we're under, we're in Africa, geomorphologically speaking, but no one knows that really. We won't <laughs> tell anybody. But uh, what they said is, no, we have, we pray. We pray in our Bible. It says we're, we're an exiled, he who, who sowed Israel among the nations will regather him back to their own land. Ezekiel 37 says God is going to bring us back to our own land. And so they said, we're not going to accept any other thing except our own land. So in that sense, it's a blending of European nationalism with biblical and prophetic hope. Now, 
in America, of course, you don't do that. There are people who talk about manifest destiny. Well, where is the man America in the Bible manifest destiny? It's not. So there's even less basis for the daughters of the American Revolution and manifest destiny in America. But who cares about that? Who wants to argue about that? But Jews, that's a good subject to argue about. So yeah, Zionism, based on the biblical prophets, a secularish understanding, uh, whether it's going to be like Vienna, or whether it's going to be like Moscow, or whether it's going to be like New York, wasn't sure. But uh, it has nothing to do with Jews sucking dry anything. But uh, the person who said that, maybe he should uh, find a nice lemon and suck on that for a while. <laughs> uh, so if, if we're looking at uh, what's going on, that we, we hear a lot of conversations that Israel is the occupier. Um, that Israel is in this nation, uh, they've taken it, and and we, we hear the chants from the river to the sea, and it, really this is not about territory, this is about the eradication of the Jewish people. Uh, how do we? How do you answer the question, um, well, isn't Israel well, a colonial occupying nation, and don't they have sure. a right to do this? Sure, I understand. I think one of the things is most people really... Uh, are ignorant of history. And the ones who say that are not only ignorant of history, they're maliciously ignorant of history. Uh, the Bible says that God gave that land to one people, and we've been there for on and off for the past 4,000 years. There were no Arabs in Israel, period. Okay, uh, The Arabs came in through a colonialist, imperialist, jihadi invasion in 635 to 638. They conquered the Middle East. They raped their way through all these countries, they forced people at the point of the sword to accept Islam, all the Christians of North Africa, Augustine's family. And what they said basically is, if you don't accept Islam, we kill you. If you don't speak Arabic, we kill you. And if you're a Jew or a Christian, you're a slave. You're a dhimmi people. And they did that in Israel. So basically, you're talking about the reason that there are any Arabs in Israel today is very simply because of jihad. They don't belong there. They're not from there. They don't have a prophetic future there. And it has nothing to do whether I, if I like Arab people and culture, because they do. It has to do with what God's word says about it. So rather than look at the people who, who, who raped that land, conquered that land, and, and forced the Jewish people there to be practically slaves, what we try to do is say, oh, if the Jews come back, that's a historical injustice. Balderdash. Okay, God promised that this was going to happen. Not in the the Quran also says, by the way, that this land belongs to the sons of Israel. But uh, most people who know the Quran don't like to quote that passage. So yeah, it's not an occupying. We're not dealing with uh, Albert Schweitzer playing organ in the jungles of Africa. We're dealing with the Jewish people coming back to their own land. Yeah, and Avner, now, um... according to according to classical Islam. Once Islam has conquered a land, it's waqf. It's a Muslim endowment. Jews can never come back. If they come back, it proves that their God and their false understanding is better than that of Muslims. So it's a whole issue of honor. It's a whole issue of shame. And so the concept of how can Jews come back? Hamas's charter says Jews cannot come back, and we're going to fight them forever until we destroy them, and Allah is on our side. So it really has nothing to do with the question of colonialism. It has to do with Islamic colonialism, which people don't want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. And 
given the you know misconception of uh, the false prophetic uh, narrative, where uh, where are we today with Israel being brought, according to Ezekiel thirty-seven, back into the land, and they are still coming? And where do you see us prophetically prophetically going, given all of the rise of hatred that we have? You're asking a really good question. Uh, I had a professor once at Dallas Seminary. His name was Don Glenn, and he taught some courses. And I remember a line he once said. He said, sometimes it's called slicing the bologna so thin that there's only one side. (laughs) Part of the difficulty in the question you're asking is we are lacking some information to answer it dogmatically. And this is a temptation of teachers and Bible teachers, is that sometimes if you can't answer the question accurately, just be dogmatic. You know, just hit the Bible a few more times type of thing. So there are two streams talked about in the first coming of Messiah. One is that he would suffer, and the other is that he would rise from the dead. Then there's another stream when he returns, that he's coming back and he's going to establish peace in the world. But there's another one part that says he comes with a sword in his mouth to destroy all the enemies of Zion. So which one of those four is true? The answer is yes, all of them are true. So the question here with Ezekiel 37, you have this army, and and most people actually don't know that passage. Uh, They know that there's dry bones, maybe from an Afro-American gospel hymn. Uh, And if they do know that it says that these bones are the house of Israel, they say, oh, that means the Jews are coming back to Israel. But the text in verse 10 of Ezekiel 37 says they come back by God, by the Holy Spirit, but they don't have the Holy Spirit mostly. And then when they're in the land, God's going to put his Holy Spirit in them and they get on their feet and they become a chayl gadol me'od me'od, an army, a big one, much, much. Now, you open any <laughs> any commentary on Ezekiel 37, you're not going to find that verse 10 talked about. I know, because I've looked everywhere. No one talks about it. Because there's a blindness in part over the church on this issue. Israel suffers. Israel uh, is a victim. But Israel is not going to be a successful army. Now, that's half of the equation. The other half is that there's a lot of scripture that talks about Israel suffering, the whole world invading us, Zechariah 12, um, Joel 3, uh, a lot of different issues going on. And so how do you put those two together, this hugely successful army, like in Zechariah 12, 1 through 9, and yet... You have the invasion in Zechariah 13, 8 through 9, and 14, 1 and 2. So I don't know how to fully put it together, but I'm waiting until it happens. And so I preach both things. What's the call right now for the church in the West? Um, even in light of looking at passages like Matthew 25, um, what, what should the church be doing? Um, and we find that what we're hearing mostly is, uh, "Hey, my pastor's not talking about this," or "What are we supposed to, what are we supposed to do?" And we find that most pastors are either indifferent or uh, they're ignorant, and they just don't even know the situation, so they don't want to expose These that. These are very, very sorrowful questions you're asking. I think America is basically falling into apostasy. I think it's been happening for some time. Uh, I say that as someone who loves America, as someone who wept when I saw certain developments happening on the walls of the White House, I saw um, uh, people becoming more and more narcissistic, including believers. 
Uh, I see people less and less interested in the scripture. But there's a certain strong core of evangelicals still who believe in the calling of God in the Bible on Israel. Mm. And that gives me great strength and encouragement. And I think to some extent it holds back full judgment on the country of America. What with abortion and what with uh, changing God's guidelines in terms of uh, marriage and identity, sexual identity, I think these are things that are not bringing good things to America. America politically is also turning more and more against Israel. So one of the things I say, I talk about a three-legged stool, and I say the three legs that I know in the Bible are Isaiah 62, which is to pray uh, without ceasing until all the prophetic promises over Israel are fulfilled. That's Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 6. The second one is Romans 1, 16 which says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's a power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew, proton in Greek. Proton means chiefly, especially, or with priority. So Jewish outreach, bringing the gospel of a Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people, is not an afterthought. It's not an add-on. It's not an appendix. Paul says it's the, it's the heart of the gospel. If he's not the Messiah for the Jewish people, he's nobody's Christ. And so that's that's a priority. That's a commandment. It's an apostolic commandment. And the third thing is that the world is turning against Israel. Now you would say, well, is that anything? No, the answer is no. But is it happening more? The answer is yes. And it talks about at the end of time that God's going to judge the nations based on their attitude toward Israel, toward Jerusalem, toward the borders of Israel, and their treatment of the Jewish people. So the world is heading straight against God. And he said, I'm going to come, like it talks about in the later parts of Isaiah 58, 59, where he says, I'm going to be judging the nations who didn't give a darn for the way they treated Israel. I'm going to judge them. And uh, that leads us into that beautiful passage of Isaiah 60 about how he's going to shine his light on Israel when the world is in darkness. Most people don't look at the text to see what it says, so they just say, well, it must be shining light on the church. But it doesn't say that there. So, yeah, these are things to pray about. What can we do to help the Jewish people in their hour of need? Could you imagine if it's 1942 in Germany, and Christians are getting together and it's saying, oh, terrible things are happening to the Jews. I wonder why they're responsible for that. Maybe they did this, maybe did that. I would say, with friends like that, I don't need enemies. Right. You know, and so sometimes we say, oh, well, there was a Buddha statue uh, during the rave concert. And that's why Hamas was uh, right to do what they did. And I would say, what world are you living in when people who are Nazi like murderers are massacring and raping little girls and you're trying to justify it? Yes, we need to repent. Israel needs to repent. We very much need that. I think America needs that too. I'm not sure of any country that doesn't need that. If we're going to apply that standard, nobody gets out of here. But at the same time, I think as we pray for Israel's repentance, there's a line in Hebrew in Isaiah 40, verse 1 and 2. It says, Dabru alev Yerushalayim, speak over the heart of Jerusalem. And one thing I can just encourage your, your listeners to Sometimes we, we have a perverted way of looking at the Jewish people to see them as a gigantic chess game. Where are they in the prophetic picture? Mm-hmm. And we don't cry and we don't weep for the Jewish people. We have no heart. We do not represent God. 
God says in Isaiah 63, it says, in all their uh, sufferings, uh, he suffered. And is that the God we serve? Yeah. Is that his heart that we have for his people? Or are we just trying to say, yeah, I've got the plan together. This happens first, then this, and this, and then I'm out of here. That, to me, is not really what we should be doing. We need to be weeping. And I've talked to famous teachers around the world whose names I forget at this point, and I say, if you're talking about bad things happening to the Jewish people, are you weeping? And if you're not weeping, you have no spiritual authority to talk about anything. Yeah, you know, I, I think of, uh, you know, the fact that uh, people are saying, uh, they're blaming what's taking place on Israel and on the Jewish people. And, uh, you know, we, we know that uh, Israel ha has to come back to God and there is judgment from God in things. But, you know, uh, like Zechariah said, uh, while God was a little angry with them, uh, That's the right. nations who were too. coming against them furthered yeah. the affliction. Yeah. Could you imagine Israel sending military advisors to America just after 9-11 to say, we want to hear exactly what's your game plan, your end game for dealing with Al-Qaeda and Afghanistan. Uh, we're very concerned that you might hurt people as you go after uh, bin Laden. I would say, what kind of chutzpah would Israel be showing? Mm -hmm. And again, if that happens to be top people in America, I don't know what to say, but I think somebody needs to be praying for these people. Um, we're we're going to close this in a second, but I was just curious, um, you know, originally you're Canadian, you moved to Israel, what, 20 years ago? Well, it's interesting. Uh, no one's smart enough to choose their parents. So my dad was born in New York City, grew up in the Lower East Side. My mom was born in Montreal. So I'm actually both American and Canadian. Huh. And then uh, when I moved to Israel and, uh, and lived here and suffered here long enough, I became an Israeli too. So I'm actually, uh, I have three citizenships, and I have a fourth one in heaven, according to Philippians. Um, but on that one, I don't pay taxes. I just have to give up my life. That's good. Um, where you're at, and you're, you know, if 62 seconds from the battle there uh, in Gaza, but does it make you want to take up one of your citizenships in Canada, in America, get out. Do you have fear every day? What is it like to be there? I tell you, yeah, it's, I tell you, every time I go to North America, and I appreciate the people. I have some good friends. But within a few days, I say, hey, I need to get back home. Hmm. Uh, the concept, like I was supposed to be in the States now for 40 days, speaking in congregations all over and seeing my new grandbaby, et cetera. And we have a boy here. I said, I can't leave. Remember Uriah the Hittite? Yeah. David said, you know, come back, come have something to eat, get drunk, go spend the night with your wife. He yeah. said, I can't do yeah. that. My people are out in uh, fighting in the, in the field, and you want me to do that? David, uh, you know, the story didn't end up very well for anybody there. But the point is, no, this is... This is a fulfillment of the prophetic dream in the heart of God. He's, he's bringing us back. This is the most exciting place in the world to live in. There's never a dull moment. It changes every day. It's kind of like in the state of Washington. If you can't see Mount Rainier, it's raining. And if you can see Mount Rainier, it means it will be raining. So Israel always has exciting things happening. Yeah. 
Avner, um, thanks for, uh, I'm going to have to go back and listen. This is a masterclass in many ways. Um, but thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for being, being a light in the land. And uh, we're thankful for this time with you. It's a joy to be with you. Blessings on you in the land of uh, quarter horses and barbecue. <laughs> yeah, it was good to be with you, Avner. Shalom. Shalom. <laughs>